Thank you. Good morning. Gracious God, we are so thankful for this moment in time that we all can come together. It is not by accident that we are together this morning. And I do pray that you would meet with us here through your word and by your spirit, that you would speak to us and not only speak to us through your words, as has been prayed, but that we might be transformed because of it. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. We're going to be in John chapter 18 this morning. And um, going to be with you for uh, two Sunday mornings. And uh, this morning we're, we're going to focus very much on one particular aspect of the text, and then next week we're going to come and, and look at the big picture of John chapter 18. But this morning I think there's uh, some very important things that the Lord would have us to uh, receive. So we're going to start, start there. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Uh, it has been my experience uh, teaching undergrads at the college across town, that uh, although we say the word holy, that we often don't really know what it means. So I want to take a moment to talk about what holy means. Um, holy is a word that was used in Bible times, in the ancient times, uh, and it had the idea of something that was set apart for a particular purpose, for a special purpose. Um, so anything could be holy, a house could be holy, Uh, We're going to think about a passage in Exodus this morning, Exodus chapter 3, where Moses sees a a bush that's burning but never burns up. And God speaks to him from the bush, and the first thing he says to him is, take off your shoes, for you're standing on holy ground. It's set apart for a special purpose or for a special use. Anything can be holy if it is set apart for that use. And then there is, uh, let, me, let me illustrate for you. Uh, many of your families have what you may refer to, at least in my family, we refer to as the good dishes, right? And the good dishes are holy, right? What's the opposite of holy? Common. So not to be used for just anything, something that's set apart for a special 
purpose. Um, so the good dishes, um, mom's wedding dress, right? Um, those kinds of things are set apart for something special and are not used for things that are common. Imagine taking the good dishes and putting a hot dog in it and stick it in the microwave. Uh, I don't know about you, but in my family, that would have been bad for, for two reasons. Number one, ours had a little gold around the edge, and if you stuck it in the microwave, that would have been a mess. But also, when you take something that is holy, set apart for a special purpose, and you use it for some other purpose, you have violated something. Some unwritten law, right? And usually mom is the one who uh, lets you know really quickly that you have violated that law. Well, when we talk about God as holy, what we're talking about is he is set apart. He is distinct. He is different. And uh, he is different from us in so many ways. Uh, and, and the danger that we face is trying to comprehend or understand God with our limited understanding and we tend to project onto God or um, read into who God is based on who we are. So how many of us have thought, well, God must be tired of me by now? God doesn't get tired of us, right? God's not surprised when things happen. And yet it is easy for us to, to feel like this is something, this whatever it is, that has happened is something that's so unusual, how could it possibly be that, that God isn't surprised because I feel surprised? How could it be that God's not in control because I feel like things are out of control? So it's easy for us to read into things and project onto God who he is not. And that's part of the problem that Jesus faces in his earthly ministry. Um, they were expecting a Messiah, a political, military ruler who was going to come and overthrow the Romans, bring in all the blessings of the Davidic kingdom, and, um, and they would have peace. And that's not why Jesus came. Which really helps us understand the context of this story when Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. If you had lived with Jesus for three, three and a half years and walked with him and done the miracles that the disciples did and, and heard the teaching and been involved in all the great things that happened and all of a sudden it's all coming to a screeching halt because Jesus said, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm gonna be delivered over to the chief priests and I'm gonna be killed. And they heard those words and they didn't wanna believe it, but now they're in Jerusalem. A week before, the crowds had cried out, Hosanna, and proclaimed him as king. Surely all those things are gonna happen now. And we, we find ourselves in this passage really starting in John, end of John chapter 12 into John, I just read through it that this morning again, but uh, starting in John chapter 12, we have this, 
this, the time is slowing down, and slowing down, and slowing down. And now we're at the feast of the Passover. The crowds are in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And um, then we come to this night where Jesus gets together with his disciples. And John 14 through uh, 16 begin that night. John 17, Jesus' priestly prayer, and now the night has fallen. And all the things that Jesus had predicted are coming to pass quickly. All throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has been talking about, uh, there's a number of things he's been talking about. One of the things he's been talking about is his hour had not yet come. And as we progress through the Gospel of John, Jesus said, my hour is not yet here. My hour is not here. Don't tell them that I healed you. Don't tell them about the miracle that I did. Go home and don't tell anyone because my hour is not yet here. And now his hour is here. John chapter 12, Jesus says, this is the hour. This is the time where the Son will bring glory to the Father and the Father will bring glory to the Son. This is that hour. Uh, There are a number of things that we can glean from the passage that we're looking at. We're going to focus on one of them in particular. Uh, Jesus goes uh, to a particular garden that he would go to often in preparation for the feast of Passover. And there, uh, Judas knew he would be. And so um, there he was met with the Roman uh, cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they came with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus, knowing that all these things were coming upon him, said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered said, and said, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he. And if in many of your translations, he is in italics because he's not in the original. This is a really significant statement because what Jesus is saying is, I am. Not only is it a, a significant statement that the he's not there, but also um, it's significant because um, there's an Old Testament background for this. In the Old Testament, when Moses, when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter three, Moses said, who do I say sent me? What's your name? And in that passage, and in this passage, and in many other passages, by the way, uh, it's not really just talking about his name. It's talking about who are you? What kind of a God are you? And there's two important things that we need to understand about who God is from this passage that, that is kind of in the background of what Jesus is saying. Number one, he's the living God. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Unlike the gods of wood and stone that the people around them worshiped, this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is a living God and he is alive and those who believe in him are also alive. I am. Secondly, I am means 
I am God as I am going to reveal myself to you. I am who I am going to reveal myself to you to be. So um, forget your preconceived notions, lay them aside, and understand that this is a living God who acts and lives in the, uh, in the uh, everyday events of human life, and in the events of our lives, he's gonna reveal himself to us. And that's what happened in Exodus. Who is he? He's the God who demands that the greatest king in all the earth let his people go. He's the God who provides all these plagues and beforehand told Moses, you're gonna go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go and he's not gonna wanna do it until he is forced to do it. He's not a God who's surprised. He has a plan. And Pharaoh's resistance was part of God's plan. The difficult times were part of God's plan. And then the deliverance was part of God's plan. It's significant to us that I am is prominent in that first great deliverance, that first great salvation because Jesus wants us to know that now there's coming another I am, and there's another great salvation that's going to take place. And again, he's not surprised. It's not an accident. He's not surprised that the Romans are coming for him. He's not surprised that he's going to die. The disciples, hearts are troubled because everything that they expected about God was not really accurate. My first point is God is not the God that you think he is, but God as he reveals himself to you. We were talking before the service Probably one of the funny, at least to me, one of the funniest things is to visualize this passage, this very serious moment where Jesus is about to go to the cross. Who are you looking for, guys? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And then they all fall down. I mean, to me, that's pretty funny. And then they get up, they get themselves together, and he says, okay, guys, who, who, who are you looking for? I am. Also, it's emphatic. Um, I'm not going to go into the Greek, but it's emphatic. This is like saying, I myself, I am. So there's this big point to be made about who he is. Not just his name, Jesus of Nazareth, but who he is. What kind of God is he? He's not the God that we think he is, but he's God as he reveals himself to us to be. I don't know about you, but it's easy to have expectations of God. And often they revolve around the things that we want, that we desire, and not the things that God desires. When I first came to Clark Summit, 
and went to seminary, one of my first uh, classes, one of my professors said something that was very profound and, it, and it, it changed my life because it changed my perspective. He said, you guys are going into ministry and, and I was in seminary to be a pastor and all that, so you guys are going into ministry and you're gonna wanna make the passage relevant. You wanna, gonna make the scriptures relevant for the people that you're preaching to. This is what you need to remember. The text is relevant. You know what's not relevant? You're not relevant. Whoa. <laughs> the reality is God has an agenda. God has a plan. And it's so different than our plan. Our eyes are so low and we see so little of, of what's really important. We're concerned about our comfort. We're concerned about our satisfaction. We're concerned about our, we define it as happiness. But we're only thinking short term. Uh, one of my favorite preachers to listen to is Tony Evans, and Tony Evans tells a story about promising his daughter a nickel. And the, the day came when he was supposed to pay up the nickel and he reached in his pocket and he didn't have a nickel. So he pulled out his wallet and he pulled out a $20 bill and gave it to his daughter. And she burst into tears. You promised me a nickel. <laughs> you don't understand. <laughs> this is a whole bunch of nickels. So it is with us. We, we, we have our sights set so low. God, as he reveals himself to us, they're expecting a God who's going to come through the Messiah and deliver them from Rome. But God had something greater in mind. Maybe today, um, no, we're all Americans, right? So let's be honest. We look at the landscape around us politically, right? We look at instability in our nation. We look at instability in the nations around us. We look at the weather. We look, there's all kinds of things that get us worked up. The economy, our own personal economy, our income, our, what goes out, our expenses. And it's easy to get caught up in, God, you have to be about doing these things for me. And he's done something so much greater. So all throughout the Gospel of John, people misunderstand Jesus. You must be born again, Nicodemus. How can I go into my mother's womb and be born again? Nope, you missed the point. I'm the bread of life. Does he expect us to eat his flesh and drink his blood? No, they missed the point. All throughout the Gospel of John, people missed the point because our eyes are set on earthly things and not heavenly things. We don't have God's perspective, we have our own perspective. And we're so busy running the race for the things that we think will bring us joy 
and peace and satisfaction. The reality is, I wish that someone a long, long, long time ago, and they probably did, and I didn't hear it in church, right? Someone a long, long, long time ago said to me, you know what? This, this life is an illusion. It's just a short period of time compared to how long you're really going to live for eternity, right? And in this illusion time, there are all these things that seem attractive to us and think, seem important to you. I don't know about you, but I have chased after a lot of things in my life that I thought were important. They weren't really important. And it was only until I got relevant, until I realized what was really important in life, to trust him, to glorify him, as Ecclesiastes says, to fear God. All these other things began to make sense once I got that right. The God, not that you think he is, but the God as he reveals himself to you. And that's what the disciples were wrestling with. And you and I wrestle with that too. Uh, Secondly, not the God that you're expecting, but the God that you need. This is the hour, this is the moment, this is the time when Jesus is supposed to pull out all of his power and do all those things that he does so well that he's been doing, prove to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the rulers that he is the Messiah. And they're going to bow down and worship him and they're going to follow him and they're going to overthrow the Romans and everything's going to be wonderful. This is the time. And John is clear, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. It wasn't what they were expecting. But he is who they need. Maybe you've had these conversations with people, I have. If God is good, then why? is this happening, or why has this happened, right? If God is good, why are these terrible things happening? Where is this good God of yours now? If you're a believer, you will face those kinds of questions. You will get those kinds of questions. You'll have those conversations with folks. And maybe, as a believer, there are times when you have those conversations inside your own heart. Maybe the goodness of God isn't what you think that it is, but what he thinks that it is. Maybe you have to reorient your thinking and adjust your mindset to understand who he's communicating that he is rather than who you expect him to be. In Exodus, back in the Old Testament, 
after the, the great deliverance, the children of Israel are up on the mountain. Moses goes up to receive the Ten Commandments. Moses takes too long. They start to get nervous. They decide they're going to make a golden calf so they can worship God. Where'd they come up with the idea of a golden calf? It's what they'd seen. It's what they knew. But what they'd seen and what they knew was not the God who was revealing himself to them. This God was holy, different, set apart, not common. So the way you worship this God is not the way you worship those gods. Those gods are dead. This God is living. Another passage that's been really um, rolling around in my head a lot is in uh, the book of Daniel, and it is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and uh, their um, confrontation with Nebuchadnezzar, the king who set up this statue for them, everyone, to worship. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three Hebrew boys decide, we're not going to bow down and we're not going to worship. And, uh, boy, the things that they say. Nebuchadnezzar says to him, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? Now if you're ready at the moment when you hear the sound of the horn and the lyre and the flute and the, all these instruments of music, fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. Uh, another version I was reading said, O king, we don't have to be careful about what we say to you in this moment. If it be so that our God whom we serve, if it be so our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage. His face was altered. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Meshach and Abednego uh, uh, he, was, he was angry towards them. And he gave orders that the furnace be heated seven times more hotter than it usually is. And the command was given for his greatest warriors to, to, who were in the army to uh, lift up them and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. They tied them up with their coats and their trousers and their clothes and their hats and threw them into the fire. Because the command was so urgent, the furnace had been made so hot, the flame killed the men that threw them into the fire. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste and said to his officials, was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. 
And he said, look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire, and he responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, uh, you servants of the Most High God. Come here. And they came out, and all his nobles gathered around them and saw that these men, there was no effect of the flame on them. Not a hair of their head was singed. Their clothes were not damaged. They didn't even smell like fire. Amazing. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating even the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree. Any people or nation or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who's able to deliver in this way. Next chapter, he makes a proclamation. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all his peoples, nations, men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to, to, to decree the signs and wonders um, which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Not the God that you would expect. If he's really more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar, why'd they have to go through the fire? Why'd they have to experience so much trouble? Why'd they have to experience so much difficulty? I hope you're tracking with me. Because sometimes we feel like, why do I have to go through the fire? If you want to glorify yourself, why don't you just deliver me from the fire? But sometimes, not the God that we expect, but the God who is, wants us to go through the fire, and that's part of his plan. But what's really cool about what happens here in, in Daniel is he's in the fire with them. He's in the fire with them. The God that we need him to be, not the God that we expect, the God who's gonna deliver and they're not careful, they're not concerned about whether the God would deliver them or not. Because they understand something about God. We're learning something about God. He may not do what we expect. He may not do what we want. He may not come around when we expect him or want him or desire him to come around and do that great and mighty thing. But he did something greater. He walked with these three men through the fire. And, and as a result, he was more greatly glorified. 
My last point is not the God who gives you answers, but the God who gives you himself. We're all tempted to ask why. I think that's human nature, to ask why. And he doesn't give us answers, but what he gives us is himself. He reveals himself to us in a way um, through the scriptures, he reveals himself in, in a way that, that changes our perspective. In life experience, he reveals himself to us in a way that we can't, you know, it's not like he speaks to us in words necessarily, but that we come to know him in a way that we've never known before when we go through the fire. Here's a man in scripture who went through a fire. And here is his response. His name is Job. Job arose and, rose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshiped and said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, he did not sin with his lips. God had taken um, his wealth. He'd taken his children. And Job responds, I came into this world with nothing. I'm gonna leave with nothing. I can't take any of those things with me. Blessed God be praised. Then Satan takes away Job's health. And his wife says to him, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job's, Job's response is, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? God is still God when there are good times and when there are bad times. Not the God who gives us what we want, but gives us himself. So Job cries out for answers. Job cries out for answers, and Job cries out for answers, and finally, God speaks to Job. And God doesn't give him answers. He just comes face to face with God. And when he comes face to face with God, God asks him a few questions. Were you there? Were you there when I created the world? Were you there? And by the time God is done asking Job questions, he has nothing left to say. In the times when we find ourselves questioning God and asking, where are you? Where are you? What have you done? What are you doing? Why are you doing this and not that? If we come into his presence and we really experience who he is, then we're gonna come face to face with a God who we really don't understand. When we go through the fire, 
what God expects from us is to trust him and to glorify him. Every assignment, every experience is an assignment from God, a new assignment from God, where God expects us to trust him and to glorify him. Trials are gonna come. Will we trust him? Will we glorify him? In uh, John chapter 18, the I am appears. I am who I reveal myself to you to be, not who you expect me to be, not like all the other gods all around you, but who I am revealing myself to you to be. Not the God that we expect, but the God that we need. Because he's holy, he's different, he's set apart. And he offers us a relationship that's unlike any other kind of relationship we've ever had. He doesn't get tired of us. And we experience grace and grace and more grace. Where sin abounds, grace abounds, all the more. In our moment of greatest need, what we need is a savior to deliver us from our sin. In our moment of our greatest need, we don't need our circumstances to change. We need a savior. In our moment of greatest desperation, although it feels like, and there's probably very few of you in this room who've ever broken your neck. I've broken my neck. I know what it's like to be in the kind of pain that is unbearable. In fact, they said that the pain could kill you. That's how bad it was. But in our moment of our greatest need, we need who God is. More than we need deliverance deliverance from our circumstances. It's easy to say that when you're not in pain. It's easy to say that when you're not suffering. It's easy to say that when things are going well, but when things are not going well. He's still God. He's still good. He's still in control. He's still working out a plan. He's still bringing glory to himself. He's not surprised. And in those times, what God always gives us is I myself am. He gives us himself. We talk about God being sufficient, God being enough. He really is enough. It doesn't always feel that way. But the present sufferings of this world do not compare to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Not too long ago, I I had a conversation in the hallway uh, at work. Someone came up to me and said, I am sorry. I am so sorry. 
And we had a conversation for about three and a half minutes about how sorry this person was and they were expressing all this sympathy. And uh, I thought that they were talking about the letter I had received the night before, a 10-page angry letter. Um, Every once in a while we get those. Um, And it was, I didn't read all of it, I couldn't. Uh, The individual was very angry. The individual was uh, spewing all kinds of stuff that they didn't have any facts behind what they were saying. Um, They made some threats. Some, I got in far enough to know that this person was threatening me and then I stopped reading. This other person also got the letter And I thought that they were saying, I'm so sorry that you got a letter like that. After about three and a half minutes, I stopped them and I said, are we talking about the letter? And they said, no. (laughs) They were actually apologizing for something that happened. It was a big misunderstanding. Sometimes we miss each other, right? We're talking to each other. You ever have a conversation with someone? You're talking about something, they're talking about something else? The disciples missed the point. Let's not miss the point. Jesus is the I am. And there's this phenomenal miracle, actually two in our passage. Number one... He says, I am, and they fall down. Testimony to the reality of who he is. Number two, Peter cuts off Malchus's ear, and uh, Luke tells us that Jesus put it back on. And says, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Peter, you still don't get it. I have to die. John chapter 14, I have to go away so that you can come and be where I am, so that I can send the Holy Spirit to help you and comfort you. I have to go away. But they didn't get it. And there are circumstances in our lives every day where we don't get it. And there are things that we have to experience. Um, Romans chapter 8 um, Paul says, all things work together for good to those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. And the good is not good circumstances. It's the good that we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, that we would be made like Jesus. And everything that happens is a challenge. It's an opportunity for us to trust him. It's an opportunity for us to say, okay, I don't understand what's going on, Lord, but I'm going to figure out how to glorify you in this circumstance. That's a whole different perspective. That's a a perspective change. That's a different way of thinking. And it comes back to who God is, not the God that we think he is, but, the God, but God as he reveals himself to us to be. Not the God that we are expecting, but the God who provides us what we need. 
Not the God. Not the God. Sorry, my brain went. (laughs) Not the God who gives us answers when times are hard, but instead gives us himself. So he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. I am with you. As you go out this week, as you go out this week and face whatever it is that God has for you to face, He's not the God that you expect him to be, but he's the God that you need. And when you go through difficult times, remember that um, he doesn't give us answers, but what he does give us is himself. And that's enough. Jesus gave himself on the cross. Died for our sins. Rose again. He didn't explain all the why, but he went to the cross and died and provided us what we needed. Let's pray. Thank you for being a holy God. Thank you for being so good to us, better than we could ever imagine. And before we knew to ask, you had already done the work and provided the way. Before we knew what we needed, you had already done the work and provided. And in every circumstance and in every situation, Lord, you are holy, set apart, high and lifted up. And your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. Help us, Lord, to trust you in the good times and in the bad. Help us to glorify you by how we live our lives. Thank you that you are making us to be more like Jesus through the things that we experience in this part of life. And thank you that when this part of life is over, you receive us into glory and we have eternal life with you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.